Well, as Ian said, this is really an extraordinary short-term exhibition for us of the four paintings that we see here, and then they are accompanied by four mezzotints or prints that were made around the same period. What's the year? It's 1710. And what's the occasion? Well, these four gentlemen have come to London as part of a delegation from the New World, from English America, to see the Queen. Okay? And why? Well, in 1710, of course, the English had already established their significant foothold on the Atlantic seaboard of North America, as well as in the Caribbean. But to the north of the English colonies was New France, occupying a good deal of what is now Canada, along the St. Lawrence River Valley, uh, and even parts of what's now the United States. Um, we'll talk more about the historical circumstances, uh, but it's important to realize that these four gentlemen who were dubbed kings, not by themselves, but by their English hosts, were in fact invited to London in the hopes of forging a diplomatic partnership between the Crown and the Iroquois Confederacy, what was then the five nations, uh, soon to become six nations, who dominated um, upstate New York from all along the Mohawk River Valley. Uh, and these four gentlemen came on a ship in 1710. Let's talk a little bit about the portraits, kind of in sequence. They're by a Dutch portrait painter, John Verelst, uh, who was often given commissions by the court uh, for distinguished visitors and, and English nobility. Um, they were made in the course of a very lengthy visit during which uh, the four kings uh, had a chance not only to uh, be presented to the queen, but to uh, see a good deal of London uh, and be feted and go to the theater and go to Bedlam, the madhouse, uh, and see, in other words, the seamy underside of urban England at the time, as well as uh, um, the grand uh, residences of the nobility. So let's start with the first gentleman over here. And here's a guy who is dubbed King of the Maquas, or Mohawks. Okay, so the Mohawks are one of the five nations of the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And phonetically, his name is Sagayithkwapito. Mouthful. Okay, uh, we know him today uh, as um, a man simply called Brant. But let's look at how John Verrells pictured him. First of all, he's got to be very exotic to the English who were encountering him. Um, the tattoos are elaborate, and they cover much of his upper body. And what are the tattoos there to represent? Anyone want to guess? His achievements as a warrior. If you look at a distinguished member of our military today and all the so-called fruit salad, so you know where they've been and what they've done and the awards that they've won. Well, uh, this tattooing 
is an indication that this guy is a warrior. And if we didn't know that already, he's standing there uh, uh, with a, uh, a musket, a rifle, which indicates that he's a pretty good shot. He's got a powder horn uh, under his uh, right shoulder. Uh, and, um, and he's dressed in an interesting way, as are all of these gentlemen. Now, can we imagine in the year 1710, in what was then a very sparsely populated region of North America and upstate New York, uh, that the leaders of the indigenous communities went around on a daily basis clad in red cloaks and shorty togas? Uh, not so much. No, not so much. Um, what does look to be authentic is the embroidered uh, object used here as a belt, which probably wasn't intended uh, to be a belt. But there are other things going on in this as well. Why is he dressed that way? Is, is, the answer is he was dressed by a costumer uh, who worked with the portrait artist. So it isn't as if he stumbled off the ship uh, you know, wearing this and, aha, Let's get our digital camera out and capture this guy. Pardon me? They could have put a kilt on. They could have, well, this is the equivalent of a kilt. Thank you, Paul. Um, now, we see lurking on his left side a shadowy sense uh, down toward the bottom an animal. And can anybody make the animal out? It's a bear. Why would a bear be in this picture? Well, it's upstate New York. It's definitely uh, an unsettled territory. Uh, it's his clan symbol, okay? Uh, the Iroquois nations, including the Mohawk, are organized along clan structures, extended families, cousins. They're also a matrilineal society. And so Brant was born uh, into his mother's bear clan. And this is part of who he is. If he, looking back at us, um, 300 years later is trying to say, this is me, this is Brant, then the bear is as much a part of his identity as his tattoos. Now, this is an, in, an English portrait in a European style of portraiture. Love the elaborate frames. These actually hung at court for a long time, were acquired by a private family before the Canadian government got them in 1977. And if we look at similar portraits from England and the continent in this period, we often see people of distinction posed either in an interior scene in which the background has a lot of clues as to their status and what they do and who they are and so forth, uh, or often um, if, if there's an outdoor element, it's framed through a window. But this gentleman is clearly in a forest. Uh, and he is a young guy, and parenthetically, one of the things that we know about him uh, is that he is the grandfather of a very famous Mohawk leader, Joseph Brandt, known to us from the American Revolution as an ally of the British. But at this point in life, he's maybe in his 20s, okay? So let's move on and, and talk about a couple more of these gentlemen. Here is another Mohawk leader, Honiyeth Tanoro. He's here dubbed the king of the, help me, Frank, Geneth. <laughs> what it really means is Geneth Tharich. It really means 
Canajahari. Anybody know about Canajahari, New York, where beechnut gum is made? Okay, yeah. There you go. Okay, so there's a cluster of Mohawk villages around present-day Canajahari. And this gentleman comes uh, from that region. Uh, and uh, like the other man that we just saw, we've got a similar pose going on. Uh, we've got a clan symbol. Can anybody find that clan symbol? Yeah, he's a wolf. He's a tiny, undernourished wolf, but he's a wolf. Okay. Um, and speaking of tiny and undernourished, let's look at that bow. Uh, this is supposed to denote some excellence in archery, I suppose, uh, but it's a kid's bow. You know, you could find one of these at Toys R Us. So I'm not quite sure whether the portraitist fully understand, understood what was going on here. We don't see the complexity or the sort of in-your-face presence of tattoos, as we saw with the other portrait. But he, too, is a young man. And again, he's posed in a sort of forest environment. We'll move on very quickly, because I want to do a little bit on each of the four gentlemen. Now, this fella over here, you know what? He's a ringer. He's a ringer. Why is he a ringer? This is Ita Okoam. King of the River Nation. But he's not Iroquois. He's not Haudenosaunee. He's actually a Mohegan. Remember the last of the Mohegans? Well, he's from the Mohegan tribe, probably on the other side of the Hudson River into what's now Connecticut and so forth. But he's along for the ride. Uh, and uh, he's got some interesting paraphernalia as well. Definitely a warrior. Um, we see the, the small uh, sword in the scabbard, and we see the war club, uh, which is Iroquois in nature and perhaps Mohegan. And if you look very closely, maybe a chance later on, you'll see a couple of guys down here on the left side doing something to each other with war clubs. I can't figure out whether they're jousting or really at each other in a serious way, but, but they are. And does he have a clam symbol? Yes, we see a fairly large turtle here. But again, uh, he's a younger gentleman. He has some very interesting tattoos, which are of the Thunderbird, which is a sort of warrior image that are up around his forehead. Um, but he is relatively uh, straightforward in visage, again, beautifully posed with his cloak and his robes. Now let's go to the last of these four gentlemen, because this is the big shot. This guy gets the title. This is Tinin Hogaro, Emperor of the Six Nations. Well, he wished. Okay. Uh, he of the of the four, he is the only one who actually is a member of a council, which is the governing body for the Mohawk Nation. Uh, and he comes not as a warrior, but as what? A diplomat. How do we know he's a diplomat? Well, first of all, his um, bearing <coughs> is that of a diplomat. And in his right hand, he's holding an object called a wampum belt. A wampum belt, which is fashioned from um, uh, beads made from clamshells, uh, typically uh, two species of clam, which give you a white shell and a purple shell. 
and they're strung in a way, first in strings and then into belts that have a powerful quality of mnemonic device or object. In other words, for the Iroquois, without a written language, what are the ways that you keep in mind the great understandings, the great moments, the treaties, so forth, of, of, of your nation? And the wampum belt served that purpose. Now, this wampum belt, we all wish we knew more about, but you can see that it has Christian crosses in it. Well, here's a supposition, because when this delegation, this gentleman whom we know as Hendrick, and I'll tell the rest of his story in a minute, um, came to London, they actually came with two requests uh, for which they were the mouthpieces. These were not necessarily their requests nor of their communities, uh, but they were definitely the request of the English officials in New England and New York. First request join with our Confederacy to push back the French, get rid of the French in Canada. Join us in an expedition which we would like to mount next year with you. Uh, and there had been a failed expedition the year before. The second request for which they were the mouthpieces was send us missionaries. Now, was that a little bubble thought that just formed in their head when they went to all of the wonderful churches that they saw in London? No. Uh, this was part of the English objective because to the extent that the native communities that a generation before had been thought of as primitive, savage, without law, without religion, and so forth, uh, now have to be understood as something different as organized, as having a government, having laws, uh, having uh, a way of doing things, these are human souls waiting to be saved. And the uh, Society for the Propagation of Christianity in England was uh, given the task of, of going forward. So this guy is sort of the leader of the organization, and he too like Joseph Brandt's grandfather, kind of lives on in history. Why? As King Hendrick, as he later became known as a principal Mohawk leader, he lived to a great age, okay? Now, the expedition in 1710 and 11 that actually was mounted was yet another futile and underfunded, and it wasn't the surge, okay? It just, it, it, it failed to dislodge the French. But in 1755, we have the opening salvo of what we know today as the Seven Years' War in North America or the French and Indian War. And Hendrick, by now an old and apparently by contemporary accounts quite corpulent gentleman, perhaps 75 years old, lead, leads Mohawk troops uh, along with Connecticut militia into battle at Lake George, New York. Uh, against an invading French and Huron uh, a group of people who are coming down hoping to split apart the English colonies. Being fat and ancient and on a horse, <laughs> Henrik didn't last. That, that was his last hurrah. But he was already an iconic figure to the English because of that earlier visit and all the ways in which the four Indian kings 
became memorialized uh, as a delegation. So, they weren't kings. We know that by now. Why were they called kings then? Why did the English want to call them kings? They wanted to deal with them here, here. Exactly. Here is England, an island nation, on the verge of becoming an empire. Okay? And to be an empire means, among many other things, that you, your presence begins to extend way beyond your original territory. And in order to have a stable presence supported by the local population, you have to make alliances. Now, the Iroquois, the real leaders of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, uh, were neutralists at this time. They didn't want to take sides very overtly between the French and the English. It wasn't in their interest. They were doing fur trading with both. They weren't sure why either were there or how long they would be. Uh, and they were reluctant to send a true diplomatic delegation. There was no precedent for that, to go overseas to do such a thing. So somehow, four guys sitting around, it's like a pickup team at the playground. You guys want to go on a free trip? Oh, okay. So these four gentlemen become, respectively, kings and an emperor. Uh, and who were the English to be able to make any distinction? We had vast barriers. I mean, just looking physically at the appearance of these gentlemen, knowing they spoke, at best, extremely limited English, and no one in England could have spoken Mohawk very well, except for the interpreters who came along, Peter Schuyler, the mayor of Albany, his cousin, and a few others, the communication was very strange. I liken it to something that many of us will remember. President Nixon, in the early 1970s, decided it was time to talk with China, Red China. So we know he sent Henry Kissinger quietly, and then he came later in ceremony. But who did he send first? The ping pong team. Does anybody remember ping pong diplomacy? Well, this is the Iroquois ping pong team. Uh, on, on their trip uh, to England, and the Brits didn't know the difference. Um, they had a fascinating experience there. Did they set precedents? Absolutely. They're the first diplomatic delegation, but not the last. In fact, if we look over here, we, we're going to look at the portrait of a Cherokee chief from about 50 years later. This is the year 1762, and this is a guy named Kunishote, who is a Cherokee from the Carolinas, and he too has come as a diplomat to see now the king, George III, not Queen Anne. Uh, but there are several important differences. What would those be? He's a real chief, okay? He is what we would call an accredited diplomat. And furthermore, when he's met with King George, by now, the rituals of forest diplomacy have worked out such that he is already wearing a couple of medals and a gorget presented to him by King George uh, in recognition of their alliance. And again, so important to the English to have allies in that Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, on the southern frontier. And the Cherokees continued to be strong allies. Um, 
If you wish, you can go later on into the blue room over here, and there are a couple of objects that are out on display that are very pertinent to these portraits. Uh, one of them is a war club from about the same era, and the other is one of the great wampum belts uh, that was presented to William Penn in 1681 by the Lenapes, the Delaware people, in recognition of a diplomatic understanding between Penn and his colony and the Lenapes who lived there. And I will sort of wrap up the, the sort of commentary part of this, and then we can talk a little bit more by sharing a, this is show and tell. You come to school, you got some show and tell. Uh, I'm gonna pass around three copies of this image, and uh, let me tell you briefly what it is. The Iroquois Confederacy lives today. It does live in upstate New York. The now six nations, the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Seneca, uh, and the Tuscarora still live in settlements and still practice the way of the Longhouse, the Haudenosaunee religion. And this uh, photograph, which is almost 20 years old, uh, includes two people whose titles I can tell you right offhand. Uh, one is Tadadaho, and he is the principal chief of the Six Nations. And the other is a guy named Hosanagata. And who is he? Well, until this day that this picture was taken, he was, by official designation of the Iroquois chiefs, he was the wampum keeper of the Iroquois Confederacy. And who is that guy? That was me 20 years ago. <laughs> How did I get to be the wampum keeper? Well, that's a long story that goes to the process of acculturation, assimilation, breaking down what had been vital communities and languages, sending kids to boarding schools, uh, doing everything possible uh, to destroy the old ways of life. And in the process, some of the great wampum belts of the Iroquois Confederacy, their patrimony, and this belt, as you'll see when I pass this around, this is maybe the most important artifact of Iroquois identity. This is the so-called Hiawatha belt, which was made about 400 years ago and describes the formation of a confederacy among five tribes who agreed to sit in council together and to mediate their differences peacefully. And this has been the great law of peace. So this object, which was in Albany for a long period of time, went back in the year 1989 to where it belonged all along uh, at the Onondaga Nation. So I'll pass some copies of this around if anybody wants to take a peek and ask some questions about it, but let's get your questions first, or comments, about the four kings and their portraits. Did you say something about the mezzotints? I'm sorry? Did you say something about the mezzotints? Oh, the mezzotints. Well, actually, yes. Um, this is another of the ripple effects. These Varelst portraits were the big hit. They were commissioned by the queen. But they, there was such a popular clamor in London and in England to know more about the four Indian kings that uh, a number of engravers took it upon themselves to make copies, and this is a man named Simon. These uh, mezzotints are in the permanent collection of the National Portrait Gallery, and they're not bad. Uh, there is another set which is mostly, I think, at uh, the John Carter Brown Library uh, at, at Brown University, uh, which dates from the same period. Um, 
but it was like all fads, you know. It was, it was Iroquois madness in London for a period of time. And you had to be seen with them. You had to have been in the theater when they went to see Hamlet, uh, so forth and so on. And so there was this proliferation. We are extremely lucky, as Ian said earlier, that the Canadian government has generously loaned us these originals, which are part of Canadian heritage. Because today, there is a Six Nations Reserve, an Iroquois Reserve at Brantford, Ontario, uh, which was uh, the refuge of those who fought on the English or losing side in the Revolution. And there are also Mohawk bands who live on the north side of the St. Lawrence River. I can certainly see that the British would have loved to hear that the Indians weren't as missionaries. Yes. Did the Indians really want missionaries? Well, sure. And of course, the, the French had the same idea. What these folks really need are missionaries. Now, the French had their Jesuits uh, all along. You remember the movie Black Robe? Uh, all along the St. Lawrence River Valley. And, but, I mean, there are powerful things going on there. It's Protestant versus Catholic. It is also the idea that Christianizing is humanizing that these indigenous people are not fully human until they have accepted the message that the missionaries brought. Did they want them? I think not so much. Uh, <laughs> um, did they accommodate them? Absolutely. Uh, one of the great qualities which makes native culture something to honor in our history is the resilience uh, and the what in religion is called syncretism. You borrow what you can use and are comfortable with. You forget about the stuff they're telling you that you really don't want to use. But they're, you know, most uh, native, most Iroquois people today are Christians, as are most native people generally. Other questions? Yeah, yeah I just asked this after looking at the Patlin exhibit. Is, did anybody die from smallpox? Okay. Did any of these gentlemen die from smallpox? And the answer is no, they all returned. There is apparently some sketchy documentary evidence that there might have been five kings who got on the ship, but only four got off. Right. <laughs> uh, and we don't know that, but that would have, numerically, that would have been a powerful thing because there were five nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. Yes, right. And, and of course, we all know, unfortunately, she's not up at the moment, but our Pocahontas is another reminder of the dangers of traveling abroad. Yes? Is there any uh, record of the response of these leaders to having their portraits made? Well, what a great question. Um, no. I mean, the record is silent on that, whereas the Cherokee chief actually is quoted on our label here as saying to his... Um, fellow warriors when he got back, now you have an image of me because I'm off to fight the French. Can anyone think of any native artists who are great portraitists? And the answer is really that's a European tradition. Uh, and, you know, in many cultures, in many traditional native cultures, the taking of an image was a dangerous thing, it was the taking of the identity of the soul and so forth. Uh, and and often shunned. Terrific. Any other questions, comments? Okay. Thank you all.